Hello, and welcome to the Power Your Advice podcast, brought to you by Advisorpedia. In this series, we interview innovators from across the financial services industry to help you understand who they are, what they do, and why that matters to you and your clients. And now, please join your host, Doug Heikinen. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Today, we've invited Jim Tennis, the president and co-founder of InCap Group, an investment banking firm focused on wealth management, asset management, and securities brokerage industries. Jim has over 30 years of experience as an investment banker and is here to break down the five myths of wealth management M&A, the common misconceptions that may be holding you back from making informed decisions. Welcome, Jim. Uh, Thank you, Doug. I'm delighted to be here. So we've circled five myths that we want to address about M&A and wealth management. Are you ready to address these? Uh, Absolutely. So the first one is valuation multiples alone can tell me what my firm is worth. Yes, this is a, um, in my opinion, a very, very important point. Let's start off by discussing how firms are paid for. Um, Sellers normally break the payments into three uh, tranches or three categories. One is the payment that's made at the closing. Uh, That's when the deal uh, completes. A second uh, set of payments is made a year or two later. Those are called retention payments. And then there's normally a set of growth payments at the third or the fourth year. If you speak only about multiples, that begs the question of what the purchase price includes. Does it include just the closing payment, the closing payment plus the retention payment, or for that matter, both of those plus uh, the growth payment. Um, A second reason why a simple multiple is not uh, enough to know is that people in the industry, including quite sophisticated people, use different measures um, to apply multiples to. Uh, Some people use uh, actual EBITDA uh, as recorded on the company's books. Um, Others, uh, including ourselves, use adjusted EBITDA. Uh, Some people focus on EBOC, that's earnings before any money is paid out to the owners. And and there's even um, uh, measures beyond that. Um, And then, of course, there's also the multiple related to um, revenues. Um, So, again, it's, it's a misconception to just say, oh, I know someone who's paid 10 times or 12 times uh, what, what their firm's something is, earnings or, or something, and therefore know how much uh, the firm uh, actually sold for. There's also one more factor to consider here, and that's deal structure. Deals are structured in different ways, and there's structures that are more favorable to a buyer Uh, more favorable to a seller, less favorable to each of the parties. And this too affects the actual purchase price. Uh, For example, the growth payments and or the retention payments may be tied to uh, standards that are different from one transaction to the next. And you would need to know about the deal structure uh, before uh, you could really make a conclusion about whether the price is a good price or not. There, there's an old uh, saw in this business that if you tell me a price and then I'll tell you a deal structure, 
And, and the point is, is that the price um, is, is, is important or has relevance, but equally so, so does the deal structure um, and the other topics that we just covered. Interesting. Uh, second myth is selling means retirement. Yeah, this is one that I think is very, very, very important to um, to understand and really to think about if a person's a potential seller. The starting point for this is that almost all buyers want the seller to stay. And there are basically two stages to the staying process. One is an employment period um, under the terms of an employment agreement. Uh, in today's world, that's usually two or three years. That's sort of guaranteed employment. And then beyond that, there's a period of at-will employment. In that environment, the buyer and the seller, of course, by now the seller has been integrated into the buyer, but the principles of the seller just negotiate with the, with the buyer about what their compensation is going to be. And where we stand in the industry today on human capital is quite important to understand. And that is that at least for the large uh, buyers and the medium-sized buyers as well, um, human capital is at a premium. In other words, these firms don't have enough people or, or they don't have enough highly qualified people. And so, whereas in the, set, in the 80s, 90s, LOs, Many of us thought about private equity involved transactions as meaning that, um, you know, a number of people would be terminated, that there was real cost savings to be had. That That's not at all the case with uh, buyers today. We've rarely seen a situation uh, where the buyer did not want to take um, everybody. Um, now, sometimes there, there may be mid-level or junior people who decide they don't want to go. That's not a problem. As a seller, if you have people who fall into that uh, situation, that's not a problem. But the buyers are very keen on, on people. They don't view employees as an expense, uh, but more as a valuable asset. And again, with the enormous growth that the industry has gone through, most firms feel, um, big. even the biggest of the firms, feel that they're somewhat um, understaffed. Um, the other thing for sellers to consider in, in this issue about uh, when would I retire is the good fortune of their own longevity. Um, when our grandparents and our parents uh, retired, many did it at 60 or 65, and they maybe had uh, statistically five or 10 uh, years to live after that. Uh, but with the significant gains in longevity, many sellers are finding that they really love the work and that they would just like to continue for um, uh, quite a long period of time, 5, 10, 15 years, and then maybe at some point slow down, then eventually stop. So that's sort of a summary about uh, why selling uh, does not mean that you just go off and retire. All right. All right. Myth number three, all aggregators and buyers are the same. This is, again, important. The environment for transactions has gotten uh, very, very large for wealth management businesses compared to what it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And what that means, or one of the aspects of that, 
is that there's just a lot more buyers uh, than there ever have been before or, or well-qualified buyers. We tend to categorize those in two categories. Uh, one is national buyers. These are firms that typically have 10 billion or more in AUM. They typically have 20 or 25 offices or more. They're just pretty significant, uh, large organizations. And then we refer to a second type of buyer as sort of a regional buyer. And by that, we mean buyers that are, you know, usually in a geographical part of the country. They may cover, you know, New England and the Mid-Atlantic, or they may cover the Pacific West and in the Mountain West, uh, but they don't cover the whole country. And the culture and the flexibility of national firms compared to regional firms, there's definitely differences. Um, and then within, within even the national firms or, or the regional firms, there, there's lots of cultural differences. To some extent, this is like picking somebody to go on a date or on, in a long-term relationship with. Different firms have different personalities, different ways of approaching things. Um, in many cases, one way is maybe not inherently better than another, uh, but for a particular seller, the one cultural fit, the, mo- the one culture may feel better and be a better fit uh, than, than the other culture. So you, you have differences both at the national and regional level, and then in terms of the firm's individual cultures. Then there's another set of things to consider, which is that some buyers are uh, what we refer to as integrators. These are firms that will buy you in the configuration that you are in, but they will want to change certain elements of how you do things, whether that's elements surrounding how you manage money, how you spend your time, brand. Uh, These tend to be unified brands as opposed to having multiple brands. Um, And needless to say, some sellers find that attractive. and, And then other sellers say, hey, there's important parts of our culture, the name that we use, other things that we would like to retain. And there's a group of buyers out there that we refer to as aggregators. And that group of firms tends to be more hands-off and more flexible about how much uniformity there needs to be across um, their entire business and across the various uh, acquisitions that they do. There's another myth out there that valuations have come under pressure in the last 12 months. Is that true? It's always hard, Doug, for any one market participant to say definitively. Uh, There's different studies in the marketplace, but our experience over the last 18 months has been two, two aspects to it. One is that we expected that prices would come under some pressure But the truth of the matter is, as we've looked back over the last 18 months, we see the market today being about as frothy as it was um, 18 months ago. We think one way to think about that is that the median offer, if if you receive, let's say, 10 offers in a competitive process, the median offer may be a little bit lower today than it was uh, 18 months ago. But the high end of the offers uh, we are finding are just as high and frothy 
as they were 18 months ago. People need to understand or have a grasp of why that is, because we have gone through a period where interest rates have risen. Um, There's been concern about inflation, uh, concern about a recession. Stock market wobbled for a period of time. So people say, gosh, with all those things happening, why haven't prices come down? And in one sense, nobody has an answer because it's a market, uh, an efficient or relatively efficient marketplace. But we think that the primary reasons are that the tailwinds uh, behind this industry are frankly greater than the any headwinds that they the industry has faced over the last 12 or 18 months. Those uh, tailwinds include private equity, not just sort of continuing to invest a little bit, uh, but ramping up their investments. There's been an active market for, for buyers that have had one private equity firm to switch to another one if the first private equity firm is ready uh, to move on or to sell its stake. And the prices that the um, wealth management firms have been able to achieve in these private equity transactions are astonishingly high. And it just demonstrates that private equity uh, continues to believe that this is a is a very attractive uh, business to be in. Uh, some of the reasons for that is the fact that the industry grows at six or eight percent a year. Typically, if you're invested in equities, of course, it could be up, it can be down in a particular year. But the long term trend is higher growth than in most mature businesses where uh, those businesses tend to grow. Uh, just at the rate of inflation or the rate of uh, population growth. It's also the case in, in terms of these tailwinds that the U.S. is becoming a wealthier country uh, than it was 20 or 30 years ago. It's also the case that fewer and fewer people are covered by traditional pensions, and that means that people have to navigate their retirement without having uh, sort of a big brother of a pension fund sort of handling the cash flows for you. And the consequence of that is that more and more consumers and, and uh, feel like they need um, advice, which means that the number of uh, people seeking advice is growing at a faster rate than the economy is. Um, and then a point we mentioned in the last segment about longevity. If someone retires today at 65 and they only expect to live to be 75, managing that 10 years is a lot easier than if you think you're 65 today and you're going to live to be 90. And thinking about the different stages of life you'll go through, the financial needs that you'll have, uh, retirement is not monolithic anymore. It's much more complicated, even for a given individual. Um, So this is also a very strong tailwind driving uh, growth in the advisory business. All right. Last myth. And I think this one's important for those who want to continue to be advisors and staying in the industry. But there's a myth out there that selling means I do not participate in the future growth of my company. What do you have to say to that one? Uh, Doug, this is incredibly important. This is really mostly a straight up myth. In other words, Almost all good buyers pay for deals, and and we touched on this in one of the earlier segments, 
in three ways. Um, they pay a closing payment. A year or two later, they pay a retention payment uh, tied to retention of the uh, clients and the revenues. And then the third way that they pay for the transactions is with growth payments. Uh, there's a lot of variation in how the growth payments are done, but we have seen almost every, almost every transaction we've worked on the last few years, there's a significant component of the consideration that's growth payments. And this means that post-closing the transaction, measured from the time you close the transaction until some period of time, two, three, four, five years out in the future, your growth will be measured by the buyer and the buyer will reward you uh, for that growth. Sometimes there's a hurdle rate. Sometimes there's no hurdle rate. Sometimes market action is included. Sometimes market action is not included. Those are all factors that we as an investment banking firm help negotiate and different people may have different views on, on what they want in, in that regard. And then there's an important second topic beyond these growth payments, which are uh, very standard, um, although, again, they can be significantly negotiated, hopefully with the goal of aligning uh, the seller's interest in when the seller thinks they can grow and how at what kind of rate they can grow to tie that into the bulk of the payments so that a seller um, hopefully achieves a high percent of the growth payments that are being offered. Uh, but there is a second factor, and that is very often if buyer takes equity in the seller, in, in the buyer, the seller can benefit either from the growth of the overall organization, um, or we've seen situations where equity can be tailored um, or synthetic equity could be used so that if a seller believes that it's going to grow uh, post-transaction uh, a good bit faster than the overall firm it's joining, you might say, well, gee, that's an impediment to a deal because the seller's not going to get rewarded. But in point of fact, uh, as I said, synthetic equity or specialized equity can be used to, to create an incentive that really ties much more directly to the um, the economics of the business that's been sold and not tied so directly to the economics of the buyer as a whole. And this is in the second important way that you can participate in the growth of your business long into the future uh, post-transaction. Jim, um, this has been incredibly informative, and I think many are going to find value in listening to this, though. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, Doug, it was uh, my pleasure and love to do uh, something in the future with you and uh, appreciate the opportunity to uh, speak about things that matter to us a lot in the industry. Absolutely. And if you want to contact Jim or learn more about InCap Group, please visit InCapGroup.com. Please follow us for timely updates on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook, all at Advisorpedia. For everyone at Advisorpedia, our producer, Julia Smolin, our engineer, Tori Miller, and the Power Your Advice podcast team, this is Doug Heikinen.